You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Christopher Moore is the winner of the Quill Award and author of the best-selling novels that include A Dirty Job and his latest, the sequel to 1995's Bloodsucking Fiends, You Suck. Welcome to the program, Chris. Thank you. Now, now you mentioned that there have been some attempts to, to film uh, Bloodsucking Fiends. Uh-huh. And I'm wondering if anything is out there that somebody's aiming a camera at. Not yet. Everybody, they've all been bought or, or optioned for film at one time or another, every one of them. And there's some great people who are interested in You Suck, and, and there's a, a deal happening. But a deal, I don't talk about deals other than to say they're happening because they've never panned out to a movie. I mean, I get a check and I get to you know, you know, pay rent and fun stuff like that. But uh, even when extraordinary people have been involved, the things have never gotten to the stage of turning on a camera. So, I mean, I can tell you Chris Columbus has uh, a dirty job. You really? Know? Yeah. And that's, I couldn't ask for better talent, you know, than that. And uh, A good match, too. Yeah. And he's, yeah, he's a San Francisco guy and he does the dark, yeah, he's the man. And, uh, you know, so I'm hoping things will happen. And, uh, you know, some... The lady, uh, Betty Thomas, is uh, acquiring You Suck, and she's a great director. She did Dr. Doolittle, which was hilarious, and it was filmed in San Francisco. So she's got a handle on the city and, and comic timing. And, and uh, I don't know, she's got like 20 movies, the Brady Bunch movie and, you know, a bunch of— but they're all comedies, and she gets comedy. And so uh, I'm excited about that. But other than my admiration for people who— also like my work, it, it, it means nothing. It means nothing until they turn on the camera. And it doesn't mean that these people aren't good or, or earnest in their, in their efforts. It's just that it's such a huge rock to turn. Um, and people continually, uh, they come to my stuff saying, and I, I don't, I'm not the names I mentioned. This is usually the suits um, saying, it's not like anything we've ever seen before. And then when they get down the road in the development stage, the thing that always stonewalls them is they how can we make this like everything we've ever seen before you know i just got fired off of a tv series that i was hired to create for that very reason they came to me saying oh well you know we've never seen an imagination like this if we could just take this nobody's ever seen anything like what you could do for tv and i did what they asked and when i turned it in they said if you could just make it a little more like lost and you know take the supernatural element out of it and, and everything oh my God. That, yeah all the stuff that i do well they didn't want you know tell and us was, a little bit about this series it sounds great what what was it what would you have what would it have been had you been had somebody sane been in charge well the initial the, the initial series i i submitted to them as it's in outline was um and actually, they own this, so I probably am in breach of contract by even telling you. But it was basically sort of northern exposure set in Hawaii. And it was it was set around this guy who was pretending to be a, uh, uh, a site archaeologist, which they have to have in Hawaii, you know, to keep from desecrating. Actually, they don't keep from desecrating grave sites of Hawaiians. They just have a guy that goes, yep, that's what that is. Bring in the backhoe, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and that'll look great. You know, it is. It's wildly sacred, and it'll look great as a Walmart. Um, <laughs> so uh, it was about a guy who was doing that, and he was running across, you know, sort of a lot of the Hawaiian myths were actually manifesting themselves in reality. 
And then there was just this goofy cast of, of characters that live in places like remote islands. And uh, a, a typical example, a typical, typical episode would have been, you know, they have uh, all these cane totes that they brought over there to to eat the bugs. They the brought cane toads over? Yeah. How insane were they? Well, they wanted to, you know, it was a, it was a natural, supposedly insect control thing, except the insects are diurnal and the toads are nocturnal, so they never saw each other. But we have a buttload of toads. <laughs> and, um, and they get run over, so there's a lot of flat crispy dried toads all over these also happen to be the same toads that you can lick for hallucinogen effect so one of the episodes would be these two enterprising surfer guys decide to start a, a mail order business you know flattriptoads.com where they send off hallucinogenic toads in you know a, a, a nine by twelve envelope to different areas of the country you know and i just thought yeah, okay that i'd watch that that's like must-see tv as far as i'm concerned and uh, um they didn't think so. So then they hired me to write one of my books into a uh, into a, a series and um, which book? Island of Sequin Love Nine. Oh, okay. And, uh, yeah. they, they Pine Cove it. again? No, no, no. Actually, it's the one that takes place in Micronesia. Oh, oh, right, right, right. Yeah, right, about right. the cargo call. Yeah, I was. Um, and it's uh, it was not enough like Lost. Yeah, actually, actually, my Hawaiian my Hawaiian series I called Found, um, <laughs> and I don't, I'm not even sure what was wrong with with Island of Sequin Love None, except that they kept wanting me to work on it and kept wanting me to work on it, and they didn't want to pay me to do any more work on it. And I was like, you know what, you guys, I don't have time for this if you if you're not going to pay me more. And they were like, oh, anyway, it was it, it was uh, it just. I need to let people who do that sort of thing do that sort of thing. And I need to go write books, which is what I do. And you do it very well. Oh, well, thank you. That was I do. Uh, long years of studying. Yeah. <laughs> so. uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, just to wrap this up. You know, when we first talked, uh, which was a few years ago, we talked about mid-list authors. Uh-huh. And, and that was still somewhat in existence then. And... And to a certain extent, that's I think where your publisher had had placed you, and mm -hmm. I, and now that's absolutely not the case with you. You're, no. So tell us a little bit about how that feels as a as a writer to to achieve this kind of you know uh, rock star success. Um, it, it it's huge in some ways in that your credibility is off the scale compared to. You know, I'm a guy who wrote a book, especially now that there's so much vanity press. It's very easy to do, you know, print on demand vanity press. So, you, you know, anybody who can who has a computer and five hundred dollars can publish a book. Um, so, uh, you know, you never know. There's no credibility anymore in saying, yeah, I have you know two books in print. You know, it doesn't even though, the you know, it was the guy down at Kinko's that printed them. Uh, in in the publishing world, you know, I've been doing this for you know going on 20 years most of it as a midlist author. And, and I've been treated, you know, both sort of shoddily by publishers and really great by publishers as a midlist author. I got to say, I've been with my current publisher for, oh God, uh, going on 10 years now. And they're terrific. And they've always been terrific. I mean, they're the reason I'm now a best-selling author as well as, you know, people finding, finding them, um, their way to my books. But um, the difference is you get to fly first class, you know, uh, you know, on your long flights. I'm still at the point where not on all my flights, but on my long flights, I get first class. Um, 
and you get to go basically where you want to go as far as it, you know if there if BEA is in New York and you go, you want to go BEA is the big um, national book convention for booksellers and it's a huge uh, thing to be able to be in the same room with all the booksellers and all the people from the publishing company um, and I didn't even get to go until like four years ago and but now if I want to go I get to go because they got to send me because I'm you know a little diva now. Um, so it's just you just get a little more uh, a little more deference in the publishing world, which is a very small town. You know, as soon as you walk out of that big building in New York, nobody knows who you are, and the cab drivers are still rude to you, and you know you still don't order fast enough at the deli. And um, the there is a a little bit more recognition in the world. You know, I mean, I I now I've been recognized a couple of times. You know, and in 20 years, a couple of times is not a lot. It's not a big invasion on my privacy. Usually it's when um, I don't want to be recognized. I was, <laughs> I was in Hawaii going to the post office one day and this little Jack Russell Terrier ran out in front of my car and I ran over him. And uh, <laughs> oh, and it, it didn't kill him. It just, he rolled, it was a, I, I was driving an SUV, which you had to where I lived in Hawaii. And, and he sort of rolled under the car and got up really mad and started running at me. Like, I can't believe he ran over me, you know? And I felt horrible. Then he ran. He was like, wait a minute. I just got run over. And he went, arr, 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 ran off into the jungle. And I was chasing him. And his owner was after him. And and I, I was just completely chagrined because I, you know, I just run over a little dog. And he was pissed. And, and as I'm running across this field, this there's it, it was adjacent this outdoor cafe and this girl at this table goes is everything okay and i go i just ran over the dog she goes oh yeah i saw the whole thing it wasn't your fault and and she goes aren't you christopher moore the author <laughs> like yeah that's exactly when i want to be recognized that was the first time i was ever recognized out in the street was after i'd run over the little dog and it's like, oh yeah he's the guy who runs over the cute little dogs and they hate him for it so there's a little bit of that but for the, the most part it's it's just um more uh, deference within the publishing world, you sort of get what you ask for. And you have to be careful at that point what you ask for because you'll get it. You know, I, for years you go, I want a full page ad in the New York Times. And they're like, yeah, that's going to happen. You know, and then all of a sudden you get it and you're like, oh, well, what if this doesn't work? You know, I've done some, now that they'll listen to me, I've done some really stupid things. You know, I did the stupidest angel version 2.0. I love that. I know, but it did nothing but confuse most people. Really? Yeah, yeah. There's, I got all these kind of uh, panicked letters. What's the difference between version 1 and version 2.0? And I said, well, we just did that to be cute. There's just a bonus chapter in it. But I, I couldn't believe how chagrined people were and confused by it because all of a sudden they thought, oh, do I need to download an update or something like that? So, you know, and that was my totally my idea. Um, and it was stupid. No, so, it was great. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's we what like I meant. It. And it was great. Um <laughs> Maybe not. To, not maybe not for the uh, guy sitting writing the checks, though. Yeah. Well, and for ten, and the book did well. I mean, I'm not, yeah. it didn't hurt the sales of the book. It was just sort of it confused people, and that's not what you're going for um, as a writer. But anyway, so that's a rather long answer of what it's like to be a best-selling author. You get to say I'm a best-selling author, you know. In, and, and what about the quill? Oh, I won. I won two of those. I won uh, two. I didn't, yeah. I, I won it. best horror novel for Stupidest Angel, and then this year I won best novel. It's really funny. The coverage was the year I won for best horror novel. I didn't get mentioned in the coverage because you know it's horror. Mm-hmm. And this year, when I won for best novel, they didn't mention best novel in any of the coverage because 
oh well it's you know it, it's him it was really funny <laughs> I, it literally was not was not even mentioned you know and the 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 best thing about the quill is its readers uh its reader choice and so it's not that i have the most readers obviously you know it's that I have the most enthusiastic readers. You know, I have readers that I communicate with on a day-to-day basis, but also, you know, they feel sort of a loyalty enough to, you know, make the effort to vote. And that was that was terrific. It's a terrific, uh, that's the best part of the award. I mean, the award itself is kind of, you know, it's, it sucks ass. It's, um, <laughs> you know, it's this piece of lucite that fell apart with a piece of, anyway. And I'd like to thank the Academy for giving it to me. But, um, no, the best thing about it is it's just an affirmation of the readers that say, not only do I like this guy, I like this guy enough to, you know, find a website, sign on, and vote, you know, for him. And and so that's that's been greatly gratified. And now they have two, I can actually use them as bookends, which is cool. We've been speaking with Christopher Moore. His new book is You Suck. He doesn't. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thank you very much. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.